1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I don't know how much time any of you have ever spent in a greenhouse, or a nursery for that matter, but even if you've spent just a few passing seconds in a greenhouse, I think you understand the difference in that experience versus walking into, say, a Hobby Lobby, where you're surrounded by fake flowers, at least in certain parts, but you're not in the same type of place, are you? Some of you love Hobby Lobby, I know, and I'm not insulting Hobby Lobby, please hear me. But even if you love Hobby Lobby, you understand the difference between walking down an aisle full of elaborate flowers and walking into a greenhouse where you are surrounded by life. You understand there are obvious differences between those plants which are real and those plants which are fake, differences of appearance Differences in the scent that is emitted, and even differences in the air that you breathe in. Again, not to speak poorly of Hobby Lobby, but all of us would rather breathe in the air of a local nursery than breathe in the air of of any big retail store, I, I trust. It does not require any level of expertise of plant life to experience that difference, to know that difference. And as we enter back into the world of 1 John, what we find is is to a certain extent, John is is speaking of the same type of topic. He, of course, is not describing the differences between Hobby Lobby and a nursery. He instead is discussing the differences between real faith and fake faith. Because as we've said in weeks past, the people in in John's community have, have become confused by these false teachers that are coming in and they're claiming to have faith, but they look and sound very different from what they've heard before. And so these believers are becoming confused and they're asking John, well, what's the difference? How can we be certain that we're in the light and they're not? How can we be certain that they've been deceived and and not us? What what should we look for, John? And while answering that question might feel a bit more complex at times, as we find in our text today, as John reminds us, the differences actually are still abundantly clear between that which is real and that which is fake. For in the same way that walking into a nursery brings about a completely different experience, walking into the presence of true believers itself should bring about a completely different experience. For the faith that is real, as we'll see, has itself a a very different appearance to it. It's marked by a different look. True faith itself emits a a distinct, unique aroma that fake faith can never never, um, copy. And ultimately... 
Just as real plants even can enrich the air you breathe, so too genuine faith enriches your community. It makes you better as a result. And so while it might not be immediately obvious to all of us, John reminds us in this passage that genuine faith is distinct. It is unique by these markers. And my prayer this morning for all of us is that as we see these evidences, as we see these differences, we might not only be amazed by the true beauty of genuine faith, but ultimately we might be encouraged to examine our own lives and ask whether or not our lives match up with the depiction of faith here in this passage. If not, where are we falling short and and how can we help each other in that process? And of course, ultimately, my prayer is that if anyone in here is deceived into thinking that they really are saved when they're not, might, might this word strike at your heart? Might you see that perhaps you too have been deceived? And true faith itself is unique and it is found only in Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to look at those distinguishing differences, let's begin in, our time, in a time of prayer and we'll begin looking at what makes genuine faith different from that which is forged. Bow your heads in prayer with me as we begin. Our Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we are already so incredibly encouraged by what has taken place this morning, God. For already we've been able to sing songs of praise to you in which we've been reminded of the pure gospel. Already we've seen examples of brothers and sisters in Christ come forward in obedience to you, and what a pleasure it is to see both men and women of different ages be willing to do just that. It is a reminder of the fact that you are a work at work here in the chapel, and it's a reminder of the fact that you use us to accomplish that work. What an incredible reminder that is. But Father, to ensure that we are accomplishing that work on your behalf, God, I pray that you direct our time here in First John. Might we be reminded of what true faith that, that is used by you looks like, God. Might our faith match the faith that is depicted here in First John. And as we see that depiction, Lord, might we be encouraged both by its beauty as well as encouraged by the true benefit it brings to the Christian community. God, might not any of us be deceived into thinking we're saved when we're actually not. If anyone is here who is currently deceived, God, open their eyes to that deception this morning. Save them from your wrath, God. For all of us, God, remove all distractions from our hearts, from our minds. Might we leave today more in awe of you, more in awe of your Son and his gospel by which we are saved. We love you, God, and we praise you, Jesus. Might all this time be spent to bring you glory. For it is in your name we pray these things. Amen. As we look through verses 3 through 11 this morning, we'll be looking at three basic differences between true faith and that which is forged. And we begin with perhaps the broadest and most obvious difference. That is the appearance of faith. That appearance, which is summarized in the concept of obedience, It's found in verses 3 through 6. And so again, if you would, follow along with me as we see this first test or first facet of true faith. There John says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. As we go throughout the book of 1 John, you'll see time and time again, John used this language of knowledge. By this we know that. By this we know Jesus. And this is combating, of course, the fake knowledge of the Gnostics. The fake knowledge of these false teachers who are saying, well, I know this and I know that. But John comes in time and time again and says, no, no, no. This is what we do know. And the first 
clearest marker that we know regarding true faith is that true faith is always characterized by consistent obedience to God. John makes this very clear. By this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If you were with us in our first couple of weeks of 1 John, this concept is nothing new to you, for he mentioned it already back in 1 John chapter 1. For in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, he has already told us that we cannot claim fellowship with light if we simultaneously walk in the darkness. Meaning, a person cannot legitimately claim a relationship with God if they still have the same ongoing relationship with the world of sin. These two things cannot be true at the same time. This obedience is perhaps somewhat surprising to, to some people in our culture, but it is by no means unique to this book in 1 John. For throughout all of Scripture, we see obedience really is, is a clear characteristic of the Christian in every chapter of their life, from their conversion through eternity with God in heaven. For just consider your conversion. I mean, what is it we all confess about Jesus when we come to Christ in faith? Well, we confess we're sinners. And we confess that, that Jesus Christ alone is able to save us from our sins. And we, we profess that, that we have trusted him as our Lord, as our Master, as our Savior. Your conversion is really your first mark of true obedience to God, believer. It is the first time you actually submit to the King of creation. And of course, that submission, that obedience does not cease with conversion, and it doesn't even cease when you get to heaven. For it's not like when we get to heaven, we're somehow cut off from our obedience to God. No, in heaven, we are living perfectly in submission to the King. The reason why there's no suffering in heaven, there's no death, there's no sickness, there's no frustration, is because there's no sin. And so when you get to heaven, for the first time, you will be able to choose perfectly to obey God perfectly for all eternity. That is one of the reasons why it is so glorious, so enjoyable. Now, of course, none of us have reached that point yet. We still sin, and John has made that clear already in chapter 1 and 2 when he's spoken of the need of confession. But even though we are imperfect, even though we struggle, we understand what John is saying when he says that the one who obeys God, he's the one that truly loves him. For that is the end result of all true love. When John speaks this way, he is, of course, perhaps referencing many different passages in Scripture, but I think most powerfully and most importantly for our time this morning, he's referencing the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. For if you can, turn back with me to the Gospel of John. In John 14, where Jesus very clearly speaks the need of this obedience. In case you haven't picked up on it yet, throughout our study in 1 John, we'll be looking at, at John, really chapters 13 through 15, very frequently. For I think it is this passage, these chapters, that John is, is quoting, that John is referring to, having heard these words from Jesus himself. And in John chapter 14, verses 9 through 15, we see this, this clear command of obedience, as well as a clear model that Jesus sets for obedience. Follow along with me, if you will, in John 14. Beginning in verse 9, Jesus, here speaking to Philip and all the disciples, said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me also. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Multiple times throughout these verses, Jesus says exactly what John says in 1 John, doesn't he? If you love me, you will obey me. And if you want to know what obedience looks like, Jesus says, well, just look at my example and my obedience to the Father. For just as he says in this passage, Jesus does nothing outside of the will of the Father. Everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did, was in perfect accordance to the perfect will of God the Father. That is why he's able to say to the disciples, when you see me act in this way, you know how God the Father is telling me to act. When you see me speak in this way, you are hearing the heart of the Father being proclaimed to you. What we must understand as believers is that the same thing must be true of us when it comes to how we represent Christ. When people see the way we behave, when they see whether or not we are obedient, they are supposed to be seeing a picture of the Son of God before them. We do this because we love Jesus. We do this because we understand there's no higher purpose, there's no higher calling. We do this because we claim we are his servants, we are his children. And as such, we live our lives differently than the world. And so as John reminds us here, if if we're truly believers, if we're truly the children of God, well then it will come up in whether or not we're obedient. That is a marker of genuine faith. The question, of course, we have to ask ourselves is, was this true of, of you? Is this obedience seen in my own life? When people listen to you speak, when they watch the way you interact with others, are they seeing a picture of Christ? Are they seeing how Jesus would have interacted with others? Or are they just seeing, well, a typical American? Are they just seeing someone driven by their own passions, by their own selfish ambition? Or are they seeing Christ? It's a hard question to answer, isn't it? I mean, I don't say that as as a a proud person thinking, well, yeah, they definitely see Christ, everything I do, everything I say. I'm not claiming that. Because I think all of us recognize that, that we all fall short in a variety of ways, don't we? If we're, if we're humble, we could all acknowledge sins that we've, we've committed this morning while getting ready for church. And, and those are just the sins we're aware of because let's face it, we all have shockingly huge blind spots in our life, don't we? We are all guilty of a number of offensive and ridiculous sins that we don't even see and it requires other believers to say, hey, you keep doing that. Please stop that. Right? We all have those blind spots, every single one of us. And so it's hard to answer this question of, well, Is that obedience seen in my life? Because we're sinful. And if the test were to to be left off there of are you obedient or not, quite frankly, I think a lot of us would struggle to, to remain confident or assured of our faith because we all fall short. It's also difficult because this the standard is so broad. It's such a vague concept. Well, just obey God and and that's how you can be certain of your faith. But there are so many commandments in Scripture. There are so many different things we could be doing or could not be doing at all times. So, so John, how can that possibly bring about assurance of our own salvation? How is this helpful? Well, I think understanding that fact, understanding the difficulty of that broad test, John continues to dig in. And he shows us not just the, the broad concept of obedience, but he digs in further and shows us a very specific aspect of this obedience, a clear sign of whether or not you are in obedience. And in essence, he speaks of the second point, this this scent, this aroma that genuine faith will naturally let off. 
that natural aroma, that scent, is that what she discusses in verses 7 through 8. It's the scent of love. Look with me again as he continues to develop this picture of genuine faith, beginning in verse 7. John says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is from the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Throughout much of his letter, when John speaks of the commandments of God, it really is this commandment that he is focusing in on. That commandment to love. Specifically, the commandment to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, believer, if you want to know whether or not you're in Christ, the question is, are you loving your brothers and sisters? Is that love obvious? As John says, this command to love is nothing new. It's actually quite old. But at the same time, he says this command is is simultaneously new. And how can that possibly be true? How is this commandment to love both old and new? I think it's easy to see how this commandment is old. For one, as he references here, the commandment to love one another is clearly part of the word which they heard originally, meaning from the moment the apostle John spoke to these people, he was telling them, love each other. You must love each other. This was part of John's gospel announcement. And so in that way, this command would have been old, that would have been familiar to every person reading this letter. But of course, we understand that the commandment is far older than that, isn't it? It goes much, much further back than the ministry of the Apostle John. To see just how far back it goes, I want you to turn back to one particularly helpful passage in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. For in Leviticus 19, you see just how old and how important this commandment to love your brothers and sisters was. How it was true not only for John, but true for those first people of God in the nation of Israel. For in Leviticus chapter 19, you have a number of these laws that are being handed down to the people. A number of ways that they're able to to maintain purity or to practice their faith before Yahweh as they're entering into the promised land. And vital to those commands, vital to their public witness and to their survival of a nation, are these commands in Leviticus chapter 19 verses 11 through 18, that all revolve around how they were supposed to treat one another. And so just to give us a a clear picture of this love, I want us to read verses 11 through 18 so that we see just how important this was to those people. Speaking to these Israelites, they are told, beginning in verse 11 of Leviticus 19, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice and judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Time and time again, 
when God is telling his people how they are to act under that old covenant, he highlights, he emphasizes this love that they are to have for one another. And as you just saw, he doesn't leave it as this broad command. He gives very specific application of this command. And so he, he commands against any act of injustice, any act of impartiality, any act that puts your brother or sister in, in, a, in a vulnerable position. And as you read through these verses, you see both, both the spiritual implications or, or reasons why it was so important as well as just practically. I mean, spiritually speaking, these things were key because they were a reflection of Yahweh. It's one of the reasons why God continually says, I am the Lord. It's a reminder that the way you treat your brother or sister is connected to the way you are treating God. It's the way that you are proclaiming God's name. But of course, when you also understand how small of a nation Israel was, and when you understand how many enemies they, they gathered around them, you also see practically why it would have been insane for the Israelites to divide against each other, to treat each other unfairly, to do anything that could harm the unity of the nation. For to do so would just be shooting themselves in their own foot. I mean, who would be so foolish as to do that? Well, of course, the Israelites, right? And they do it over and over again. You see them regularly treating each other unfairly, unjustly. You see the nation being divided, and you see the ultimate consequences of those sinful practices. And so when we see these commands in Leviticus, we see that, that John is right when he's saying, well, this is nothing new. It has always been vitally important for the people of God to love each other. This has always been to be a defining characteristic of the covenant community. And yet, as we already mentioned back in 1 John, he also says that this command is is also somehow new. This command that's been around since Leviticus is also a command that is new. How could that possibly be true? In what way does the New Testament make this ancient command new or unique? Well, the answer to that lies not in 1 John necessarily, but again, back in the Gospel of John. For in John chapter 13, we see why and how this command became new, namely became new in the model of Jesus Christ, and it became new in its context, that new context being his kingdom. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 13, and you see this new command given by Jesus Christ in verses 31 through 35. It's important to remember that this is taking place during the Last Supper, so the time of Jesus' crucifixion is nearing, so he is giving vitally important instruction to his disciples as to how they are to live in his absence. With that context in mind, let's pick it up in verse 31 of John 13. Therefore, when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children... I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's impossible to fully comprehend the weight that these words of Jesus must have carried with him. For in this context, again, Jesus has already told his disciples that one of them would betray him. Judas has left. Jesus now speaks of the fact that his time to be glorified is, is arriving, which means 
He's about to be crucified, and as he says here, it means he very soon will be absent from the disciples. And having told them that he's about to leave, what is the command he gives them? What is this central, important message that he gives? It is little children. Love each other as I've loved you. That's it. That's the command. We said it before in our study of 1 John, but it serves worth repeating that John would have been here for these words. And this perhaps explains why John uses language like little children in his own letter. For this is how Jesus spoke to him. John, with those other disciples, was there at that dinner table as he heard these terrifying words that Jesus would soon be gone and following those terrifying words. He is told, first of all, not only is Jesus leaving, but but he's leaving you behind and you are now his representatives. And so your central calling disciple is to make sure you love others as I have loved you. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that we have this clearly recorded message in which Jesus tells his disciples outright that he loves them. But it's clear off these words that that love would have never been questioned up at this point in time, would it? For they had seen this love in action time and time again. Day in and day out, John and the other disciples knew firsthand what it meant to truly be loved by God. And so when Jesus says he has this new commandment, he in part is is speaking to that model of perfection for the first time. That commandment in Leviticus was lived out to perfection. And so in that way, the disciples are able to say, oh, okay, that's, that's what Leviticus means. This is what it means to love each other. And so in that way, the understanding itself is new, but even beyond that, it's new in the the context that Jesus creates. For as he says, as he is leaving, he is inaugurating this new kingdom. In this new kingdom, it is the love of our brothers and sisters that, that makes us different. This is how people will recognize the kingdom, Jesus says. Not just by your message, but principally by your love for each other. That's what makes you different. And it's that context that John speaks so powerfully to back in 1 John. For just as Jesus speaks of the kingdom that he is inaugurating in which we love, so too John in verse 8 reminds us that the reason why this is true is because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John speaks of these different kingdoms in such a beautiful, such a a moving way, for he speaks of the reality of the fact that that sun is rising. A new day has arrived. The new kingdom is triumphing, and the old kingdom is dying slowly. As he described this kingdom in this way, and the mindset that must come with that, the imagery that came to my own mind this week is is the the difference of, of anticipating a vacation Versus the experience of having that vacation come to an end. Maybe you've experienced this before. Right? Can you think of any any trip you have saved up for for months or years or even just a couple of weeks and finally you're getting away? Right? If, If you've ever anticipated that vacation, you know the excitement you feel the morning that you're leaving, right? On that day, the sun can't come up early enough. You just want to get on the road. You you make sure you're packed up early enough. You can't wait to get to the airport. You can't wait to leave all your troubles behind because in your mind, this vacation is going to be everything. You're thrilled because of what lies ahead. And because of that, you probably even act a little differently at work the day before. You're in a chipper attitude because, hey, you're leaving tomorrow. 
right? You're, you're maybe hopefully a little bit nicer to your family because you're going to be stuck with them for this next week, so well, you better make the best of it, right? And so everyone's happy, everyone's overjoyed because they're heading into this glorious time of rest. Now compare that to those waning hours of the vacation as it's coming to an end. Assuming the vacation went well, how are you feeling in those final hours? Well, if you're like me, you're kind of grumpy. You're frustrated because you know, ugh, i got to get up tomorrow and then I have to go to work and I have like 50 emails I haven't responded to yet and i got to drag my kids out of bed to get to school tomorrow. That's going to be awful, right? And, and before the vacation is even over, you're dreading it. You're so frustrated by it because you're just thinking back on was and you wish it it could still lie ahead of you but it's coming to an end it's coming to a close well believer when john speaks of these two kingdoms living simultaneously he is speaking of this reality that really matches up with that first picture he's reminding the believer that that we are in that first day the sun is slowly coming up but it's just going to get brighter the rest will just become an increased reality the joy will only continue to grow your love will only continue to grow The best is yet to come. How tragic it is that so many believers are living as if the best has already passed. How tragic it is that believers throughout so much of our culture are looking back as if, ugh, darkness is winning. This life is miserable. I'm awful. I'm miserable. I have no joy, right? And they kind of hang their head and walk through this life as if the vacation that Jesus Christ gave them in his death, burial, and resurrection was this temporary moment of joy, but it's all quickly fading. Oh, believers, regardless of how frustrating this world might become, we understand those frustrations. What's the death rattle of the last kingdom? That darkness is passing. All we have ahead of us is the kingdom of light. And so as we love our brothers and sisters, we love them in anticipation of what we know is going to happen. We love them because we know what lies ahead. We love them because that great rest that Christ promised is slowly but surely being realized in each and every one of our lives. And so we respond with love because we've been given everything we could possibly ever want and more. And we're able to enjoy it with brothers and sisters in Christ who also have experienced that same love, that same joy, that same satisfaction. And so we live out our lives in love because this naturally comes from the heart that is overjoyed, that is grateful, that is thankful. So John, reminding us of that glorious kingdom, says, brothers and sisters in Christ, if if you really want to know if you're in the faith, well, just take a look at your own perspective. Take a look at, at whether or not the way you treat your brothers and sisters is really characterized by love, or is it something else? And again, to use that imagery of walking into a greenhouse, walking in the nursery, your senses are immediately hit with that aroma, with that perfume. When someone comes into your presence, what aroma immediately fills the room? What experience immediately hits them? Is it, wow, this person's different? Wow, this person's so loving, this person's so compassionate. Or is it nothing? Is it emptiness? Is it hollow? It's an important question to ask because as believers, this is, as Jesus Christ himself said, the defining characteristic of our true faith, our love for each other. And so not only is our faith marked by that appearance of obedience, it's marked by that aroma of love. What is perhaps most spectacular, though, regarding this real faith is that that experience, that reality, does not simply stop with this internal enjoyment. 
That is to say, our faith does not just affect us. Rather, genuine faith has this incredible effect of of actually helping other people as well. Having a genuine impact on the world around you. That is the final result of our faith that we look to in our closing verses, verses 9 through 11. Follow along with me as we do and see this difference. There John says, The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. One of the reasons why the testing of the faith is so important is because, as John says, it will have a significant impact on the people around you. And as he describes this impact, he speaks really of those two different kingdoms and those two different citizens. Because tragically, as we find in verse 9, there were these professing believers who were not marked by that aroma of love. They were not marked by that clear obedience. They were marked and characterized by a hatred for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as such, they're not tools to be used to prop others up, but they're tools that only cause other people to stumble. It's an amazing thing to think of how early these citizens of darkness were affecting the church. It's incredible to imagine the audacity of these false teachers who can come into a room and say, yeah, I know John ate dinner with Jesus, and I know that Jesus told him these things directly, but just trust us. John doesn't know what he's talking about. You just follow me, and, and then I'll really give you the whole story. I mean, the sheer audacity of that. That's what they're doing. And so doing, they're, they're questioning John's authority. They're questioning the gospel message. They're speaking of him and other believers in a hateful manner. We see that same prideful arrogance at work in, in Paul's ministry, don't we? Again, we think, how could anyone question Paul? He's Paul. But Paul was surrounded by people, it seems, that were thinking, meh, not all that impressive. He's not as smart as this other guy. I even wonder if he's a real apostle. People were constantly bashing the apostle Paul, bashing John, bashing anyone they could for the sake of building up, of propping up their own kingdom. Tragically, the same audacious arrogance can be seen all around us in our culture today, can't it? I mean, think of your favorite godly Christian author or pastor. Just think of them. And then Google their name with the words false teacher. And I assure you, you can find numerous bloggers, numerous writers who want nothing more than to tell you, oh, that person you love, no, they're actually not very godly at all. They're terrible. So read my blog and my books, and then you'll know the truth. Our culture is filled with people who profess Christ yet speak horrible lies, horrible slander against godly brothers and sisters in Christ. It's full of this. And it's so easy to to fall into their wake, isn't it? Because we think, well, why would they say it if it's not true? They must know something that I don't know. And so maybe, maybe I should believe this slander. Maybe I should even repeat this slander in passing to other people. What we don't understand is that so frequently these people are not genuine Christians. They're workers of iniquity, striving to divide the kingdom of God. And too many believers are following after them. What we must understand is that this warning is nothing new. 
that just as it was the case in John's day, so too there are countless professing believers who are not working to draw you into the light of Christ. They're working to cast a longer shadow across you. So that your response isn't, look how great God is. Your response is, oh, I'm so thankful for this other person who revealed the secret truth to me. And it's tragic. But it's a common temptation for all of us. For we live in a culture that is marked by anger, marked by slander, marked by constant gossip. But believers, that cannot be true of us. We cannot be quick to spread any slander, any lie of brothers and sisters of Christ. Even if you don't care for another brother or sister of Christ, take great precaution in how you speak of them to others. For you are spending an eternity with them. And your job is not to try to make yourself look bigger. Your job is to go and show the glory of God, the glory of the light that he offers Incredibly, that is the, the work and the glory that, that John speaks of, of these true believers. For unlike those who cause stumbling, something that Jesus very clearly condemns in his ministry, unlike those, there are these other true converts. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother, who abides in the light, and there's no cause of stumbling in him. What a beautiful statement regarding your calling, brother and sister. You're not called to do some miraculous work of kingdom building. You're just showing people the light of Christ. You're just making sure that you're not making it any more difficult for them to understand and see Christ, see the gospel, to see the light. You are simply inviting your brothers and sisters to enjoy that same love that you enjoy daily. And as you do this, you are doing the work of a true saint. As you do this, you are inviting people in to experience that love that is found in Christ and Christ alone. You are building the sort of relationships that characterize the kingdom of light in which we all live. And so again, the question we must ask ourselves is, okay, is this the sort of impact I make on other people? Am I that encouraging to other people? Do people experience the love of Jesus more as a result of the conversations they have with me? Are, are people more inclined to look to the light of Christ as a result of their interactions with me? Or do people just seem discouraged by my impact? Do people just seem depressed or ashamed that they're not living up to my standards, they're not living up to my commands? Am I unknowingly casting a shadow across a pathway where the light of Christ should be shining? It's an important question for us to ask because, again, this should be the natural life of every true believer. For as we are obedient to Christ, as we look to his glorious light, as we see his perfect example, we not only see just these, these simple actions of spiritual disciplines that we do in the privacy of our homes, we see our Savior lovingly dealing with other people, reaching out to people with great compassion and grace, and as we see that, we say we want to be like that. And so we, in turn, love our brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus taught us. And even if we cannot see it firsthand, we can be confident that as we do this, the kingdom of God is growing. That light is growing brighter by the day. And we will enjoy that love and that grace. We will enjoy that life. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we consider these things, there is this natural call to, to really, really investigate our own faith. As a chapel, 
I ask us, when people come into the lobby on a Sunday morning, are their senses struck by love? Do they see brothers and sisters who treat each other like brothers and sisters? Or does it feel like they're just walking into a local grocery store, to a local retail market? Is there anything that makes us different? I think there is. I pray to God there is. But to be that difference, we must be loving. And so, brothers and sisters, are you loving? Are you eagerly praying for your brothers and sisters of Christ, lifting them up, seeking out ways to encourage them, to serve them, to practically help them out? Brothers and sisters in Christ, does your life, is your life marked by obedience to God? Is it different because you've placed your faith in Christ? Or do you go day in and day out without anything, any thought going towards that? Well, as John tells us, ultimately the differences should be clear. It should be seen. It should be experienced. But this experience, of course, can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so as we close our time this morning... For my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not simply a time to bemoan how terrible of a job we're doing, perhaps. It's a reminder of where our power comes from. It's a reminder that we, by nature, if we follow in the pathway of the world, will become discouraged. We will be workers of, of, of darkness, but it's only by living out the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us that we'll be able to reach out to others in love and obedience. And so, believers, let us pray together to be more obedient today, to be more consistent in that obedience today. And as we do so, let us enjoy that great benefit of those kingdom-building relationships that are being built up all around us. For those of you who do not know Jesus Christ, I, I pray that you come to him this morning. I pray that you profess your faith in him. Here as we close in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to think through these things and, and be reminded of just the glorious truths of this gospel, the glorious truths of the new power that's been given to us. We'll do that by taking part in communion. As the band plays, after I pray, I encourage all of you who've professed faith in Christ to take part in this. Not because you are perfect, but because you are a sinner saved by grace. Not because you can save yourself, but because you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as you take part in the juice and in the cracker, let it be a reminder of that incredible love that Jesus Christ has shown to you. And as you have that physical reminder of Jesus Christ's love for you, pray that God gives you an, uh, the ability to see ways that you might practically reach out and serve and love others today. For those who have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you don't partake in communion. Take the moment to think through the gospel, to think through the calling to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I pray you do that this morning. That being said, let me close this in prayer, and the band will come out, and you are welcome to join us for communion. Father in heaven, we again thank you for today. God, I pray, I pray that our faith might be so evident by how we speak, by how we act, that it just takes but a few moments for an unbeliever observing us to see the difference in us. But in this, God, I, I do not pray for us to make our names great. I pray they might see that difference and, and be driven to look to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that our love for them might just be a, an echo of the infinitely greater love that is available in Christ. Father, we live in a world in which people constantly divide against one another, constantly pick each other apart. And we confess as believers we can be prone to do that same thing. But might we never be guilty of picking a fellow brother or sister in Christ apart? Might we never strive to make our names great by making another person's name miserable? 
Might the world know us by our love as you promised it would. God, cause us to grow as this is a chapel. Cause us to grow in our appreciation of you, Lord, and as we take part in this time of communion, cause us to grow in our appreciation of the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that this time might be spent to your glory. Amen.